Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Tonight's scripture, tonight, uh, the word of the Lord comes to us this evening from the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. So if you would, please open up your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to the Colossians. We're in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. We're starting a new series in the the evening in the book of Colossians, and uh, I'm privileged to be the first one in. So if you would, hear now the reading of God's holy word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit." Thus says, the re- thus says the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you condescend to speak to sinners such as us. We thank you, Lord, that you are God who makes himself known. Lord, thank you for your word tonight in Paul's letter to the Colossians. I pray that through it you would speak to us, and that you would sanctify us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, please do this, we ask, and we will give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus commands his followers to let our light shine before others so that others may see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Well, in our passage, that is exactly what's happening. In our passage this evening that we just read, the Apostle Paul is glorifying and praising God in response to a a report that he's heard about the Colossian church. Now, Paul himself had never actually visited this church before, but verse 8 of our passage makes it clear that he knows about them from their pastor, Epaphras, who had most likely visited Paul during his Roman imprisonment. And this should get us asking the question, what was it about the Colossian Christians that could make Paul rejoice and praise God even though he himself was suffering in prison at the time. And secondly, we should be asking ourselves, 
how might we become like these Colossian Christians so that our lives could also bring glory to our Father in heaven? Well, let's begin to answer those questions by looking at verse 3 in our passage tonight. In verse 3, Paul tells us that he always thanks God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whenever he prays for the Colossian church. Now, the first thing that should stand out to us about this verse is the object of Paul's thanksgiving. Notice he doesn't thank the Colossian church. That would be what most of us consider a normal thing to do. Because whenever we write thank you cards to someone, we usually begin by thanking that person for whatever kind deed they did. But that's not what Paul does here. Paul doesn't thank the Colossian church for being such nice people or being such great witnesses for Christ. Instead, who does Paul thank? Paul begins his letter by thanking God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this tells us something very important. It tells us that God is responsible for whatever good news Paul has received about the Colossian church. In other words, apart from God, Paul would have no reason to be thankful for these Colossian Christians. Because it is God and God alone who has begun to do a good work in them. And that is why Paul starts his letter by thanking God and not the Colossian church. This means, of course, that if we as Christians want to be a light of the world, if we want to let our light shine so that others would glorify God, we must continually be on our knees asking God to do that good work in us. We need to be daily and hourly dependent upon God to be at work in our lives. Of course, this also means that when we or others see ourselves glorifying God through good works, we automatically need to turn around and give all the praise to God. I don't know about you, but so often the time when I see myself doing well spiritually, I begin to get puffed up with a little bit of pride and arrogance. I begin to think that I'm all right, and how could God not love me? I'm doing so well after all. But that kind of thinking is faulty because it shows who I think really is responsible for my life, and that's me. But that's not the case. It's God. So this is how we can avoid the snare of pride. Pride is one of the biggest stumbling blocks for any Christian. But we can avoid that trap simply by remembering who deserves the praise and the credit for our sanctification. But what exactly is it that Paul is thanking God for in regards to the Colossians? Well, Paul tells us in verse 4 where he says that he's thankful for their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, faith is one of those words that gets passed around all the time in church. 
but how many of us actually stop to consider what faith is? The Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that faith is the receiving and the resting upon Christ for our salvation. To put it differently, in maybe more modern English, you could say that faith is believing and trusting in Christ for our salvation. But what's but what's involved? What does believing and trusting look like? How does that play itself out? Let me give you an example. If I'm driving on the highway and my wife suddenly tells me to t- take the next exit and I do it, it's because I believe her and I trust that she knows what she's talking about, that she knows something that I may not know as the driver. It's also because I've learned from experience that I get in trouble when I don't listen. But, but for the most part, it's because I believe her and I trust her. At least that's what I say. Well, in a similar way, when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That automatically challenges us to believe and trust in him. But here's the thing. Whenever we believe and trust in someone, something else is also happening on a deeper level, isn't it? For example, when I listen to the directions that my wife gives me in that moment, not only am I believing and trusting, but I'm also letting go of any control or self-determination that I previously had in that situation. So likewise, if we believe and trust in Jesus when he tells us that in order to be saved, we need to go through him, in that moment, the moment we do that, not only are we believing and trusting, but we're also surrendering control of our lives over to Christ. And when we surrender control of our lives over to Christ, what we're really doing is submitting to him as our Lord and Master and honoring him as King. That's what's involved in faith. It's submission. It's a surrendering of the will. And that is why Paul is thankful to God. Yes, he's thankful to God that the Colossians are being saved through faith, but He's more thankful that Christ is being honored as Lord and King. He's thankful that Christ's dominion over this fallen creation is spreading throughout the world. And part of the reason why that is such good news and worthy to rejoice over is because wherever Christ's dominion spreads, a genuine love for others also begins to spread. Hence, Paul says in verse 4 that he's thankful to God because he's heard of the Colossians' faith in Christ and of their love for all the saints. Now, this tells us something important. It tells us that faith and love always go hand in hand. They cannot be divorced from one another. And the reason for that is that if Jesus is your master, the one that you've surrendered control to, 
then Jesus is going to make you live how he lived. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 7, for example, that you can tell who his real disciples are by the fruit they produce. And so just as Jesus came into the world to love and serve others by giving himself as a ransom for many, so likewise will his disciples serve the needs of others through acts of sacrificial love. But let's notice here for a moment what Paul says in more detail. Notice who he says is the object of the Colossians' love. It's all the saints. He's thankful for the Colossians' love for all the saints, for all the people of God. This means that love produced by a genuine faith in Christ will always be directed first and foremost to the people of God. In other words, those who really love God will love the same people that God loves. This means that anyone who claims to be a Christian, but who is callous or indifferent towards the church, is actually living like a fraud. This means that anyone who just shows up to church on Sunday morning for the sermon and neglects the fellowship of the saints has some serious self-examination to do. And the same goes for people who are perfectly capable of coming to church, but instead sit at home and watch the sermon online. And the same goes for the people who come to church and love to take and receive, but never give or serve in return. Now that may sound harsh, but it's true, and we all need to hear it. Because if we're being honest with ourselves, that's all of us. That's our natural inclination. We were born selfish. And therefore, we all love to receive and to take without ever giving or serving in return. But genuine faith is always expressed through acts of love towards the people of God. And no, you don't get to get off the hook on this one just because you had a bad experience at church one time. Just like every other institution, the church is made up of sinners, which means that we can all expect to get hurt in church at some point in our lives because sinners hurt each other. Unfortunately, that happens. But that doesn't give believers an excuse to give up on the church. Instead, we are called to love our enemies. We are called to love one another even when it's really hard to do so. And that's because that's exactly how God loves each one of us. Even after we've sinned against God and rejected Him as Lord, He still sent His only begotten Son to die for us in order that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And even now, as we continually sin against our Lord, He never stops loving us. As a result, everyone who puts their faith in Christ is now called to imitate His love, which means that we are to sacrificially love one another, 
even when it hurts to do so. And that brings me yet to another point about this relationship between faith and love. Love must always conform to the character of God because God himself is love. Which means that the moment a seemingly loving act doesn't line up with the character of God is the moment that act ceases to be truly loving. So just as faith without love is no true faith at all, so too love devoid of genuine faith in Christ is no real love at all. Apart from Christ, seemingly kind acts are just selfish or self-serving performances that feed our own pride. And this is the kind of fake love that we see so much in our secular, unbelieving world today. Love that is divorced from the character of God. And this is why whenever we do see ourselves or others performing genuine acts of love that do conform to a Christ-like character, this is why we, like Paul, should rejoice and give thanks to God. Because that means that God's Holy Spirit really is doing a work in us and in the people around us. It's a sign that we truly are being sanctified. It's not something that we can do on our own or in our own strength. And therefore, God deserves all the praise. But how exactly do we as Christians get this kind of faith and love that Paul is so thankful for? Where did the faith and love that the Colossians have come from? Well, in verse 5, Paul tells us that their faith and love are the offspring of their hope that is laid up for them in heaven. Now, at first glance, uh, that might be a bit surprising to us, that Paul makes hope the basis for faith and not the other way around. After all, wouldn't it make more sense to say that Christians only have the hope of eternal life after they've come to saving faith? Well, when you stop to think about it, the answer is no, not really. And that's because in order to have faith, you first have to hope that this life is not all there is, don't you? And before you can have saving faith, you first have to hope that you can be saved. And before you can have saving faith in Christ, you first have to hope that Christ really is who he said he was and that he really did do what he said he came to do. And before you can have faith in eternal life with Christ, you first have to have hope for eternal life with Christ. Sadly, the reason there aren't more Christians in the world today is because the world is full of people without hope. The world is full of sinful skeptics who have grown too comfortable with the status quo. So the real question then becomes, how did the Colossians get this hope that is laid up for them 
in heaven. Well, let me assure you, they didn't get it from wishful thinking or from too much time spent daydreaming. And they certainly didn't get it from watching too many Disney movies. No, according to Paul, the Colossians got their hope from hearing the gospel, which is the word of truth. But how can Paul, or the Colossians for that matter, be so certain that the gospel is true? Well, in verse 6, Paul seems to suggest that you can see the evidence of the gospel's truthfulness in the impact that it has. In verse 6, he says, this same gospel that is bearing so much fruit in the lives of the Colossians is bearing the same kind of fruit in the lives of people all over the known world. So to illustrate this point, my wife and I recently got our yard and our house sprayed for bugs because we were seeing too many spiders and other creepy crawling things around our property. But the only way we can tell if our money was actually well spent is by waiting for the day when we no longer see insects around the house. In other words, the end result is the only way we're going to determine whether or not that spray really is what it claims to be. And so you might say the proof is going to be in the pudding. And that's exactly the point that Paul is making in verse 6. He's saying that you can see the truthfulness or the reliability of the gospel and the effect that it has on people. And we see the gospel's effectiveness in the way it produces faith and love in people's hearts. And not just in this Colossian church, but in people all around the world. That's the difference the gospel makes. And on a personal note, I, 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 lo- I would like to think that this is the difference that the gospel makes in my own life. When I'm tempted to doubt the reliability of Scripture or the reality of God, I think about what kind of person I would be if this were not true, if faith was something made up. And the truth is, I would be a much worse off person. I would not be the kind of person that I am today. I would not be the father and the husband that I am today without the help of the Holy Spirit. And my wife would not be the amazing wife that she is without the influence of the Holy Spirit. And this church would not be the amazing church that it is without the influence of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen the goodness of the people of God. We've seen their faith and their their love firsthand as a family. We recently just had our second son born on August 8th. And as a result, we've signed up for a meal train. And so we've been blessed with all these people in our congregation bringing us meals. And the truth is is that a lot of these people are much busier than we are. A lot of these people bringing us meals have infants of their own, infants, babies that were just born. They have jobs and careers. They live busy lives, and yet they find the time to sacrificially love people like my wife and I by making us a meal and delivering to us at our home. It's simple acts of kindness like this, sacrificial love, that testify to the goodness and the reality of the gospel. 
It's in the goodness and in the love of Christian people all around us that we see the fruits and the reality, the truthfulness of the gospel, of the grace of God. But here's where a skeptic might respond and say, okay, Paul, but there are other people besides Christians who are faithful and loving people. So what makes the gospel unique or Christians any more special than all the rest? Well, the answer to that, I think, is pretty simple. And it can only be maybe proven by experience or seen firsthand. But the answer is that only Christians have a faith that is capable of truly loving others. Because, remember, love always has to be in conformity with God's character. And so you cannot love, truly love, without genuine faith in the God of Scripture. And so, Christians can only, only Christians have a faith that is capable of truly loving others. And only Christians love others in a way that's faithful to God's character. In other words, what makes Christians unique and what demonstrates the truthfulness of the gospel is the quality of our faith and the quality of our love. It's our loving faith and our faithful love that has united Christians all around the world for centuries that demonstrates the truthfulness and the power of the gospel. And so one last question remains for us in this passage. How do we hear and learn about this gospel? Well, in verse 7, Paul tells us that the Colossians have heard and learned about the gospel from a man named Epaphras. And this is a man who had no seminary training. He probably heard the gospel preached in Ephesus, which was 100 miles west of Colossus. He probably heard it preached from Paul while he was there in Ephesus. And then when he heard the gospel, he brought it back to his hometown and he shared it with others. And eventually a church sprung up. And so, my brothers and sisters, if we want to become more like the Colossian church, if we want to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to God, here's the answer. This is what we need to do. We need to continually sit under the teaching and preaching of faithful ministers of the gospel. If we want to be a city set on a hill, we must saturate ourselves in the gospel. As Christians, we never graduate from the beauty of the gospel. You never get to the point where you get to move on from the gospel. The gospel is our lifeblood. It is the thing that we must cherish every moment of every day that we must delight in and meditate on. And the more we do that, the more we meditate and cherish and delight in the beauty of the gospel, the more our hope will feed our faith, and the more our faith will demonstrate itself in acts of love and this, these genuine acts of love that are in conformity with God's character will inevitably cause the people around us 
to give glory to our Father in heaven. But it starts with the gospel. It starts with cherishing the gospel. It starts with submitting yourselves to the faithful preaching and teaching of men of the gospel. And the more we do that, the more our light will shine before others and the more people will give glory to our Father. That's the difference that the gospel makes. And that's how we as a church can be a light in the midst of darkness. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this gospel. We thank you, Lord, for sending us your only begotten Son to save us from our sins and to restore us to what we were meant to be, which is your image bearers. And Lord, we pray, we ask, Lord, for your forgiveness as a church for not, for not loving your gospel more, for not meditating on it like we should, for not delighting in it as we should. Forgive us, Lord, for not thinking about it as much as we should. And Lord, I pray that your gospel, Lord, would plant seeds of hope in all of our hearts and in all of our lives. And I pray that our hope would feed our faith as we meditate on your grace. I pray that your grace, Lord, would make our faith stronger. And I pray that as our faith is made stronger, our acts of love would be greater. And that as our acts of love would be greater, that your character would be made known to the world around us. So that sinners would turn to you and repent and give glory to God our Father who is in heaven. Lord, do this work amongst your people. To glorify yourself, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.